when we're selling the house, I'm always going to make sure that buyer has equity day one. I'm not interested in pushing comps and getting being the highest selling property in the area. That's not my goal. Because the reality doesn't matter if you're selling the house and you're going to make 50 grand selling it and then you could you could bump it up and make an additional 10. Yeah, that 10 is great, but it's not going to change your life that much. But it could be substantial for that person. That 10 grand could be the difference in them being able to refinance if they got into trouble. So we're always going to leave some equity there because life happens to us all. And some of us are more or less prepared. And so I want to make sure that I'm not a part of putting you in a position where you're in a compromised situation. And even when it comes to leasing a property, you know, we have a, a certain number we want to hit as our ROI. If we can eclipse that number, great. But if we can hit our number, we're fine with hitting our number. So for us, it's never about squeezing all the juice that's left in the grave. We want to leave some there for the next person. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate firm in the great state of Texas. We buy Class B industrial across all the major markets. We are committed to technology. We have a world-class culture. And more than anything, we are a forward-thinking company. If you want to stay in the know on all things going on at Fort Capital, visit us at fortcapitallp.com, follow us on LinkedIn, or subscribe to this podcast. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Enjoy the show. Tyron, man, I'm excited uh, for today. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to have Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> the words all stumbled up already. So you can tell I'm really excited. been looking forward to doing this. It's all good, man. I've been excited too. Um, let's just kick it off with kind of your story growing up. We just chatted about kind of some career ambitions you had, but let's share it with the audience, uh, how you grew up and how you kind of got into the career that you have today. Yeah. So it's kind of funny when you tell the story, uh, looking back in your life, it's, it's just kind of funny, the serendipitous uh, things that happen throughout life. But I grew up in a neighborhood called Fifth Ward. So if anybody ever listened to the Ghetto Boys uh, in there uh, throughout their life, then uh, that's that's the neighborhood I'm from. And so uh, generally when I tag it in a post on Twitter, I make sure I include the bloody nickel uh, because that's what it was known for. And so I grew up in an area uh, inner city urban area, much like most inner city urban areas. Um, the the youngest of five kids grew up in the hood. Uh, you know, we've heard these kind of stories before. Not really a rags to riches story. We were a uh, lower middle class family. Um, I didn't really realize how lower middle class we were until some other experiences happened in life. But, um, you know, it was pretty cool. I uh, had a great family uh, network and things of that nature. And went through high school, uh, had aspirations to go to college. I went to college uh, for two semesters. So I tell people I didn't graduate, I quituated. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but really, it was be, part of it is, uh, and there are a lot of different reasons. And there were even opportunities that made where I could have stayed in college uh, when I went there. 
Um, but truly my aspiration was this. I just wanted to go so my mom could say at least one of her kids went because neither of my siblings even went. So at least I did go. I didn't finish, but I went. And so once I could, you know, check that off, I immediately started uh, looking for opportunities to go into the workforce and start to carve my path because I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I saw my dad as an entrepreneur. And so that was what I felt like my ticket was going to be is I'm going to be a business person. So you, so you, you grew up in the fifth ward and, and, and from what you're doing now, a lot of the work that you're doing is still, it's in that ward. And I assume it's, it's all over Houston. Can you speak to kind of what you're doing today and kind of the areas that you're doing it in and how that kind of ties back to your childhood? Sure. So in its current iteration, um, you know, about eight years ago, I set up a company called Houston Vintage Homes and Development. And the mission was, our mission statement this day is to reshape the face of inner city Houston one home at a time. And that really came, the genesis of that was when I was a kid, and I'm going to date myself here, I used to hop on our clothesline and jump on the back of our house and look at the downtown skyline and dream about doing some really cool stuff. My father was in the transportation industry, so I had this vision. I'd buy a warehouse. We'd have our trucking and logistics company on the first floor, and then I'd have a really cool house on the second or third level, which years later I figured out or I was educated and found out those were called loss. And um, and so I always had this dream of being in real estate, but didn't necessarily know it to be real estate. So once I set up Houston Vintage Homes, the mission was to go back into communities like where I grew up, Fifth Ward, Third Ward, Second Ward, Sunnyside, which these are some of your urban inner city uh, communities here in the city. And the mission of the company, like I said, was to reshape the face of inner city Houston one home at a time. And what you find in these areas are there's three types of properties. There's homes that are functionally obsolete. So houses that have been there for years mm -hmm. and they don't function the way that homes uh, need to function today. Then you have a lot of vacant lots and you have a lot of dilapidated properties. And so I just felt like I could really have an impact in that area and that I could provide a higher quality of housing than what I saw people doing. There were people, affordable housing isn't new. It's just that no one... Uh, to me, there was so much lacking in that space. And so um, that's uh, so that's a little bit about that. Yeah. OK, so when, when you go into these areas, who is like if, if we take the lots and the dilapidated that are kind of obsolete, who owns all that stuff like currently? Is it individuals? Is it the city? Is it like who, who mainly owns this stuff and, and how long have they owned this stuff? Sure. So you find a, a few different things. You have people that are kind of, you know, that are savvy enough to understand that these areas won't always be in their current condition. So today's just a snapshot of what it looks like in the present. It's not necessarily indicative of what that future for that area will be. So you have people that um, have purchased land and they're just kind of land banking it or they have properties that are dilapidated and they have them boarded up and they're just waiting on time and inflation to have its perfect work. And then you have a lot of renters uh, that are there as a result of landlords. And so uh, and then you have a small portion of people that are homeowners. So um, but they don't represent the largest portion of the people that are there. When you're buying these properties, are a lot of um, is a lot of it already on the market for sale or is it because you're really plugged into the community? You kind of know, you know, what could be bought or what can't like how are these transacting? Sure. So the first thing that happens is, as you know, you know, the as big as a city may be, it gets shrunk down once you start moving into who's who the real players in any given market or sub market are. So 
Um, I do buy stuff off the MLS quite regularly, um, but I have built a reputation as the old Ragley house guy. So, you know, if you got holes in the roof, holes in the floor, if you think it's a teardown, then, you know, you're going to do like Erica Badu said, you're going to call Tyrone <laughs> and see if he wants to buy this house. So most people don't want the houses that I buy. And there's a reason why I buy them from a strategic perspective, but most people don't want those houses. And so I get an opportunity that most people don't get or don't even want in in many cases. So let's just like go straight into that, because that is what I've always been fascinated as I've followed you the last couple of years. The stuff that you buy. Yeah, it, it to the to most people, especially that haven't done it before. It's like it looks, I mean, like a teardown. But you go into these time and time again and keep the bones intact and kind of redesign it. So is there something that you're doing differently? Are you more creative or or what are you doing differently that's kind of making these uh, come back to life when most people can't make it happen? So first part of it, um, Chris, is, you know, what what my wife says when we're at dinner parties, she said he has this weird sickness, you know, uh, and this infatuation with old raggly houses. So that's the first thing. I don't know where it really came from. Well, you know, the way I articulate it today is I tell people I have a Superman complex. You know, I see an old Ragley house and I don't even see the house in its current state. Bells, I hear bells and violins playing. My eyes start to glisten. My forehead <laughs> start to shine. And I automatically see on the canvas of my imagination something that's different than the current state of the house. And I start asking myself when the architect or the builder built this, what was his original intent? And so that's the philosophical mumbo jumbo component to it or the passion piece to what I do that excites me and that caused me to have an affinity for these type of properties. Now, when we get to the alpha component, um, the reality of the matter is this. We buy any house, uh, we'll buy any piece of uh, any house or any piece of land. Well, let me say it like this. We, I'll buy any house if you sell it to me for land value, because in essence, whatever that structure is. It's now free, if you will, or I'm not necessarily paying for it. I'm paying for what just the land value is. Now, from a building component, if I were to buy a vacant lot and, you know, design something and build it, I'm looking at somewhere between a four to nine month lead time, depending on if it's a single family duplex or triplex. So whereas if I buy an old Ragley house, I can get that permit within a week and in four months I'm done. Whereas if there were new construction, I hadn't even broke ground yet. So there's a financial benefit to buying that old Ragley house and not tearing it down, tearing off everything that's not functional, everything that's in uh, disrepair and leaving only the things that are good. So if, in most cases, what that boils down to is we take off the roof, we take off uh, the siding and we take off, you know, as much of the termite damaged wood that's uh, been damaged from the lapboard siding, which leaves us a foundation and a frame. We lift it up generally 12 to 8 inches, uh, 8 to 12 inches, and then we bring it all the way back. So even my old Ragley houses essentially are brand new houses when we're finished because the only thing that is from the previous structure is the foundation and some portion of the walls. Yep. And in a lot of what you're doing, you're converting single families into duplexes and triplexes, aren't you? Yeah, most certainly. So, you know, we'll take a, because what happens with these old houses is each room is separated. So you have a dining room wall, living room wall, then the kitchen and, and so on and so forth. So real choppy floor plan. So uh, we have one that's three bedrooms. Uh, it's 1,448 square feet. That house will become a three bedroom, two bath, fully functional home. And then it will have a one bedroom, one bath attached uh, efficiency loft or, you know, just efficiency unit. Uh, to it. I have another property one street over from this one 
where it is currently a thousand square feet. We're going to add 800 square feet to it. Um, and it will become a, a duplex that features two, two bedroom, two bath units. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 okay. And, and when you're done building these, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the process to build them, but, but when you're done, are you selling these as investment properties? Are you holding on to them? Like what's the end goal with these? Sure. So our mission is multi-layered and our approach. And so a large part of what we're doing right now is more, I'm in more of our build to rent phase. So most of these we're keeping, uh, in times past, uh, I've been selling more of them because when I invest in an area, I invest in advance of it becoming the cool place to be. So I generally want to be, you know, there's this, there's what I call this development cycle, if you will. So I want to invest at the beginning of the cycle and I want to be responsible for you being comfortable to live there. So I don't want, I don't wait till somebody else makes it nice and look great. I want to be a part of making it nice and great so that you say, okay, great. I would want to live here. I'd want to own property here. So in order to do that, we had to sell off certain you know, assets so that we could bring more people into these communities. Because one of the things that hurts these inner city areas is as a person grows up in that kind of environment and moves up the socioeconomic ladder, they leave these areas and that leave and they take their influence and their impact and their example to another area of the city that doesn't even need that example or, you know, it doesn't grow or isn't enhanced by that person. Whereas when you have a a business owner that moves into one of these areas where kids in a neighborhood can see it or they can be active in the community or bring their business into the community. It can be a part of developing that area. So uh, there's a certain portion of our business where we are always going to sell just because that's how we get more and more people into this area. And on the business side, we need those liquidation events. But right now we're also doing a, you know, a great deal of build to rent because uh, one, it's a, you know, the market needs it. That's part of how we're going to solve the affordable housing crisis, and uh, it just makes you know good business sense. Yep. So when you when you were selling these, were you traditionally selling them to folks that had grown up in that kind of inner city neighborhood? I would love to say most of those people. Well, now I don't know if I'd love to say that. I'd love to say I was selling it, selling them to more people who are from those areas. But what tends to happen in a lot of these cases is we don't want to move back into some of these areas until we've been kind of priced out. <laughs> and now they're mad that they can't afford to be there when there was opportunity uh, in advance of some of those things. But um, we have been able to get a decent, I'd say for every 10 houses, there are probably three people that you know, are from that area. And in these inner city areas, a lot of times what you have are people that aren't from the city, because in a city like Houston, you know, 50% of the city are people that got here as fast as they can. They didn't, they weren't born here, didn't grow up here. And so uh, the beauty in Houston is the affordability. So in general, general terms, you can live inside the city with downtown views and walkable neighborhoods close to stuff. And, you know, 280 to 350 grand, which is unheard of in, in some other major cities. So in a lot of cases, it's upwardly mobile professionals that are moving to these areas because of its proximity to downtown, the quality of lifestyle it provides. And, you know, it's just a wise investment and they understand that. Right. Is there an inflection point of some type when you said you were early in that development curve? What is there something that happens? Is it just enough of them done or you know, people have now seen the turnover for long enough where people start to go, oh, wow, things are starting to, to turn around. Is there is there something that usually happens or like, how do you think about that? So generally what 
So my strategy is this. I call it I follow the smart money. And so I didn't. So like even in my neighborhood, it, obviously I had an affinity for my neighborhood. But one of the things I also did is I studied my city and I studied around to get an understanding of what's going on. And so my philosophy is I follow the smart money. Well, how do you know the money's smarter than you? If they have more commas and decimals, uh, if they have more commas and zeros in front of the decimal point, then it's safe to say the money's smarter than you is my simple premise of looking <laughs> at it. So early on, years that, like in 2005, I was on a um, board of directors of a nonprofit organization. Long story short, they uh, they did a the, the city of Houston made me privy to a study that the city did to show what were the areas of town that had the most tax delinquent lots. And what and my neighborhood happened to be one of those uh, areas that had the most lots. So what that said to me as a person that understands real estate and development, if this area has the highest concentration of lots, vacant lots that are tax delinquent, that means it's the easiest area to redevelop because you, you don't have to tear down houses. You don't have to worry about displacement. You don't have to worry about nimbyism because you got a ton of lots. So that just showed t- showed me that, you know what, this area is going to be hot. So this uh, is in 2004, 2005. So in that area to kind of give you a range of what's happened. So I purchased my first lot over in that area for uh, $7,000. Okay. We just purchased one um, in 2020 for $100,000. There was two blocks away from that one. So from 2006, 7,000 to 2021, 100,000. And so that's uh, how values have increased. But going to your point of that inflection point, so not only did I recognize this, other large builders and developers who have way more money and resources than I uh, recognize this. And so they started to purchase in this area and other areas like it. So the inflection point to me is paying attention to what's going to happen in that area from a public and a private uh, sector perspective and yep. then putting yourself in front of that wave. Got it. And on your labor and the crews that are doing these jobs, are you GCing it? And if you are, like, are you hiring folks to work on these homes from these areas so that it's, it, it again, further keeps, you know, the prosperity kind of in labor within the, the, that ward or whatever area that you're developing? Sure. So let me explain that in long form. So part of, um, so there are a couple of different iterations of our business. And so, yes, we have our own building and construction company where we manage our own projects and we teach other new investors or new developers how to do the same. So our first phase is kind of, you know, to use uh, Reagan's old uh, concept of trickle down, if you will. So we try and start with the investors and the developers to empower them. So individuals from these areas or who have an affinity for these areas, empower them to do the same thing we're doing. So now we're bringing in investment capital and getting others to help us kind of change these areas. So that's part one. Part two of that is something that um, one of my uh, babies, if you will, is called Urban Builder School. And what Urban Builder School is designed to do is to get more of us to become licensed builders. Like in Texas, you don't need a license, so you can just hang your head and go. But in other states, you do. So we want to help get more people into the building space. And then uh, another, the next layer of that is getting more people from these same communities into the trade. So I have many friends and colleagues and people I've met who are now in the HVAC industry um, that are now uh, becoming carpenters. And, um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult on electrical and plumbing because there's such a long uh, period of apprenticeship that's required. But we've actually been able to help two people uh, go down that path or get started on the path to becoming plumbers. 
And so that's the next layer is getting more people engaged in the trades. And then the last layer is we do work with the schools that are in our communities. And so we tend to try and adopt a school, a middle school uh, or high school that's in these areas so that we can now help the kids understand when you see that old Ragley house or that vacant piece of land, you know, two houses down from you, and all of a sudden you start seeing work happen. One, we want to educate the kids and help them understand the kind of incomes that can be made as service providers for these respective trades, you know, help them understand the kind of uh, money that plumbers are making, electricians, framers, carpenters, things of that nature. Because a lot of these guys make really great money, but you don't know it because you see them in a raggedy truck and a T-shirt and they're dirty. So we want to educate the kids and kind of help them through that image problem to recognize opportunities there, but also to recognize that they can actually be the builders or the developers or the designers of these products. So don't just limit yourself to the physical work that's involved, but there's also some career opportunities that are present in this space. You may not, most kids don't even know about uh, engineers and what they do to help us build housing. They don't even know that there's such thing as an architect or, you know, an appraiser or a survey guy. And so uh, through Urban Builder School and some of our uh, initiatives, you know, we try and touch every level, if you will, of what's happening in these areas. That's incredible, man. Did you put together this curriculum? Like, how did you kind of put this whole thing together? And is it, do people come in like year by year? Or like, how did, if I was a student about to start, what would be my experience? So this is getting refined as we go in and, um, you know, uh, going into 2022, we're formalizing some things and really setting up Urban Builder School because what's happened is this. Um, so generally, it's it, it hasn't been as organized as I'd like for it to be. Um, and that's just because certain aspects of it were in the infancy stage. You know, I spent several years uh, really perfecting what I felt like is a formula for affordable housing and redeveloping inner city communities. So I spent the first probably three years of when I created Houston Vintage Homes and Development is I had a theory. And so I had to go out into the marketplace and put my dollars to work and test that theory. You know, can you make money buying an old Ragley house, renovating it, bringing it to today's standards and then servicing it to the marketplace? Is that a viable business model? Uh, and then incorporating that in areas that are growing and gentrifying. So once I figured out that work, then I started taking that one step further and looking at what are the biggest needs? How do we how do we solve affordable housing and how is it applicable? I didn't want a formula that only worked in Houston because my bigger vision is to reshape the face of inner city housing all over America. But I couldn't grab that. I couldn't bite on and run with that. My, my confidence and my abilities and that vision wasn't as powerful or as strong as it needed to be. So I could shrink it down to Houston and figure that out. Now, eventually I'll scale it. And so We've been just kind of putting the pieces together over time. Right now, we're at the stage to where now I've I have enough of a I have a strong enough body of work of people whose lives we've been able to impact by us doing what we're doing, and so now it's time to really galvanize the infrastructure so that we can really grow it and start to impact other markets because now we have opportunities in other cities where you know I've had other cities that have seen what we've been doing in Houston and they say, hey, listen. You know, we got some land here. We got some opportunities here. Bring what you're doing with real estate, impacting, bringing trade people into the trades and impacting the schools. Bring that here. Uh, so now we're in the process of really, um, you know, shoring that up so that we can scale it without having to worry about the infrastructure not being there. So that's the macro version of what's going on. Um, from a schooling perspective, there is a curriculum via a program called Junior Achievement. 
And so when I was in middle school, there was a guy who came to my middle school from junior achievement and it was very impactful. And I said, you know, when I become successful, I'm going to uh, volunteer with that. So we utilize junior achievement as a vehicle to volunteer in the schools to then go out and teach that. So that's helped us uh, be able to leverage from an organizational perspective and, and do some things there. And then with Urban Builder School, what we've been doing, uh, one of the initiatives I have with the suburb of Houston is there are some carpentry schools and some HVAC schools. And so what we do is when a person wants to get into the trades, we help them find one of these local schools in the area that is either offering, you know, some type of stipend or scholarship or something like that. And then we send them to say, hey, listen, go over there, call them, tell them Houston Vintage Home sent you. Then once they go and get their certificate, they give us a call. And now we have, you know, one of my HVAC guys, if they got their HVAC license that we can have them work with, or if they've learned framing now, you know, we got our own framing crew and they, that they could potentially work for and learn, or I have other trades that I work with that build our houses that do service work for us as well that we can send them to. So depending on where you are, you know, if you're looking to be a builder developer, that's more of a coaching pro program that I do within the context of, you know, my time. And so it's, uh, it's generally about a four to six month time frame where we literally we, we're going to do a project. So say, OK, Chris, you're qualified. You got your money. You understand, you know, what kind of investment you want to do. OK, let's go find a property. We find that property. Then I take you through the chain. This is how we put that deal together. I call it massaging the deal. So you got to figure out, you know, how much are you going to make? What's the what's it going to cost you? Here's the lender that can, you know, provide the financing for it. Here's the capital you need to do that. And then I coach them through that process. So I don't want to manage your construction project. You need to manage it so you can learn. So it's trial by fire. The difference is you always have the coach or me to put out the fire whenever it shows up because I've been there before. And so I'll let certain things happen so that we can come to what the solutions are. You can go through that process of problem solving, because truly, I believe real estate's a problem solving business. Yep. We just it, but it's wrapped around people and property, though. That's what keeps it interesting. There's always something to work on. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I have very one more so. question on this. This is just fascinating, especially how early you're getting involved. In the inner city, how early do you need to get involved in these children's life before they're kind of started, are, are kind of at an age where they're met with maybe a fork in the road? They could start probably doing things that they're not going to be proud of later in life, or they can take a different path. How early in their life does that really start happening? As early as you can have impact is when you want to do it, but middle school is key. Like if you can catch them in between sixth through ninth grade, you can start to plant seeds in their minds. You know, it, it just, you know, just, it was probably not even a, a month or two ago. I went back and thought about something that happened to me when I was 12 years old. And that was I, my sister got a habitat, a house, um, Habitat for Humanity house. And so you had to volunteer 300 hours, I think it was. Well, I helped frame and put the sheathing on her house when I was 12. And I'll never forget thinking to myself as we're putting this house together, like, I'm like, man, this is all that's in this house. Like, <laughs> this is it. Oh, I can do this. And I forgot about that over time. And just, you know, I was walking by her house the other day because, you know, she lives in, my, in our community where we grew up. And I was like, man, you know what? This is this is a part of why I do what I do today because of this house right here. So and that was at that middle uh, middle school uh, era. So middle school is where you really want to. That's the critical portion. If you can touch them in elementary school, it's cool uh, to plant those seeds. But middle school is where the rubber uh, really meets the road, I believe. OK. 
All right. What is the definition of affordable housing to you? I think that 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 phrase gets used in a lot of different ways. Is it is it something with government assistance and things of that nature? Or is it just something that is truly affordable? So I'm probably not, you know, I don't have the the, the proper vernacular or, you know, I'm not going to use the, you know, the legalese terms or whatever the case may be. But to me, affordable housing is this. It is um, it is housing price to where the average work, the, the lady who's cooking your food at your kid's school, the guy who is, who's on the back of the truck picking up the trash in your community. You know, when you go out to a nice restaurant and, and the person who's servicing, uh, you know, you as a waiter or maybe the maitre d' or whatever the case may be, when you can provide housing for the, the average person. That to me is what affordable housing. So it's that number moves based on what city we're in. But when you can provide housing for, you know, pretty much the people who are the bread and butter of our society, you know, not the person that's at the upper echelon or, you know, the person that's making, you know, above average income, they're probably not going to want affordable housing anyway. So it's when you can provide basically for the people who are core and critical to, you know, keeping our society moving. That to me is affordable housing. And when you're um, underwriting a tenant or you're doing a background check or a credit check, I know in this segment of the, you know, income, you know, world that you can often look at a choppy history or maybe credit that's not as as good. Is there something that you found that you can say, look, I know maybe in the past things weren't good, but when you see something is like, I, I can... You know, there's something you see in the report or in the person or in something that goes, you know, this is a person I still want to rent to. You, let me answer that. Let me give you a little bit of a long answer based on experience. So my worst tenant to date was a young lady who had tremendous credit, stellar job history, parents that could co-sign. And when they left our house, they left uh, her boyfriend, left a, uh, a stripped down Cadillac on blocks in the garage. The pit bull had ate up the fence and tore my backyard up. Juxtapose that with my our best tenant to the date to date. If we could clone this guy, I would build as many houses as I could or apartments and rent to him and anybody you know he brought along. This gentleman literally had just gotten out of prison, maybe had been in the workforce about two to three months. And long story short, because he had a felony, no one would lease to him at all. And he couldn't find anyone to lease to. And, you know, I'll never forget us sitting there talking to him. He said, you know, I'm not saying I'm not a bad. What I did in the past wasn't bad. It was. But I'm not that person no more. And I paid my debt to society for that. All I'm asking for is a chance, you know, a, again, to prove myself. And, man, when I can tell you, well, if I tell you, Chris, I would walk into his apartment and I would, you know, you know, you, 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 you're impressed when you go into a place. I'd be like, man, I can hang here. <laughs> like it was just amazing how clean and nice he kept it. So I say that to say, you know, real estate's a people business and it's a problem solving business. And so you have the application and what's on that application, but underwriting is looking into a profile or a, or a situation and seeing what's not so readily available in black and white. That's what truly underwriting is. And so, it's asking questions. It's allowing that person a chance to explain certain things that are blemishes or, or issues. And a lot of, you know, it's not a perfect science, but, you know, sometimes it's an intangible thing like trust. It's just you just know deep down in your knower that, you know, I feel a certain way and I'm going to take a chance on this person. Then in other cases, it's just, you know, everything lines up and they check off all the boxes. So, so yeah, I don't know if that necessarily hits the nail on the it head, does. but that's kind of sort of our mentality in our process. You know, what I tell our 
um, our agents that are whenever they're working with clients, I say, listen, you got to look at the application, but you got to look beyond the application. So you have what's on black and white, but then you got to look beyond that and ask really great questions. And we have some questions that we tend to ask all tenants when we're uh, kind of screening them to get an idea of, you know, who they are as people. That gives me chills, man. I mean, if you're going to go pay your your debt to society and you're going to be in prison and you get out, you should be given a fair chance. You don't, it's like doing time even when you're not in jail, if you're not. Um, when people come out of prison, I, I've never, I've never had a place to lease to a, an ex-felon, but does the prison give them any type of some certificate or just something that they can show the world that says they were a, even a good, you know, person in prison that kind of alludes to who they are? Or is there anything even like that? Sure, there are, um, you know, they, you know, because in a lot of cases, depending on where you are and what you've done, there are different classes people are taking, they're getting their GEDs and stuff like that. So there's things uh, they've learned trades and things of that nature. So, you know, a common saying in the hood is don't serve time, make the time serve you. And so that ha- that speaks to what did you do with that time while you were there? And so there's, you know, certifications they may have received and things of that nature, which, again, that's something that's no different than the application. You still got to look beyond that. Still got to ask questions and get into a person's mentality. How are they thinking now? There's a certain type of mentality and there are some certain beliefs and ideologies they subscribe to that put them in that particular situation. Now they're in a different situation. So it's our job as stewards of the property to ask questions that are going to help us get a good idea of their mental framework today and how they've grown over that time period. And are they going to be suitable tenants or occupants for a property that we have? Gotcha. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals they can go into their portal online, go to their profile and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent. Every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. When you're financing this, is are there any type of credits or is it pure just a private transaction or do cities help with any of the financing of these properties or is, is there anything outside of a typical equity and loan? There is. Um, I just hadn't really delved that deep into it. You know, for me, it was so I was having a conversation with a mayor of a small town. And, and what I told him is this. I said, Mayor, I'm sure you guys have some incentives and things of that nature. Everything we've done has, up to this date has been outside of those, any of that type of assistance. It's just been me and other like-minded investors where we partnered together and we had a vision that we could execute it. Now, as you start to scale and do certain things, I think there, you know, you have to get into subsidies, you know, tax credits and things of that nature. 
Um, and, you know, we will start to investigate and do more projects that are centered around that just by virtue of some of the opportunities that have been presented to us. But up to this point, because I wanted to prove that I could do it like again, I had a, I had a, in my mind, I had this vision and I felt like we could do this without any outside support. So if we got it, great. But if we didn't get it, could we still service this market? And we've proven that we can. Yep. This is a uh, kind of a loaded question. Uh, bear with me here. But you've learned so much about affordable housing. Obviously, you've built a lot of it. You grew up in the areas that, that you're serving. So you kind of know how the impacts that it's having. If you were elected into, you know, I know probably the last thing you want to do is be a politician. Hell, maybe you do, but uh, it's a tough life. But let's just say you were elected and you truly could get done the things that you felt needed to be done to solve this crisis on a very big level. What are the things that that are obvious that we should be doing that are so obvious that we can't get out of our own way? Man, listen, beautiful question. Thank you for asking, Chris. The first thing I would do is streamline permitting. It when you understand it's just just use simple math okay we I, as a developer i purchased a lot for 100 grand and we're going to build three units on it that you know will be worth $250,000 each or let's say we purchased a lot for 50,000 we're and build three units on it that are $250,000 each so now the city goes from earning if you have 3% tax rate you know on 50,000 was at 1500 bucks to uh 750,000 you know i mean it's a huge chasm of money here between what it was as a lot versus having three properties on it. So as a uh, political official, there's no way I would make it difficult for a developer to go from here's this piece of land that I want to build on to the permits that you need to build. So that's the first thing I do is I streamline permitting. Number one, number two, um, which with number one, you would change the game totally. Like that in and of itself would be a huge sweeping change for any major or even small city. Um, the second thing that I would do is I would be more, I don't know if the word is inclusive. Let's see. Um, what I would do is I would do more to empower people who want to bring about change to be able to do so in these communities. Like most people in the, like in the hood or in other areas, they think that what's about to happen in a certain area they think it's 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 hidden knowledge and nobody knows and it's in a secret book and five or six people get together and they map out everything that's going to happen in the area and only the five or six people in that room know not knowing that no anything that's going to happen in in generally in is is public knowledge there's a record of it it was posted somewhere they had civic meetings and stuff like that so there's a educational process we got to go through to get more of the people who are concerned engaged in the process of change. What most of us do is we have an opinion. And one of my latest mantras is own something more than an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about whatever's going on. My thing is I want to be able to see your opinion in action. Show me that you have this opinion. Then you've galvanized other like-minded individuals so that you have a consensus of believers. And now y'all have put your money together and you now are bringing about change via the opinion you have. So we have to be able to take people because everyone has an opinion, but now it's how do we apply that op opinion and put it into action? So those are the first two things I would do is streamline permitting and then make it easier via education, inclusion, and just bringing about more awareness and exposure so that people who want to bring about change understand how they can do that by working with the city, the municipalities, or whatever the case may be. Yep. I love it. 
you're we're going through a big uh costs are up right now labor's up inflation that's the the hot word on twitter obviously we're trying to build affordable housing here which means we got to keep costs low can you just speak to what you're seeing right now in the market and what you're doing about it sure well it goes back to what we talked about earlier see a lot you know let, I always tell people uh, when we're having this conversation, I say, name to me the last time you met uh, any person. I don't even say young person anymore. Name to me last time you met any person that said, hey, listen, you know what? I want to be a, a, a plumber, you know, or I want to own a plumbing company or electrician company or a HVAC, you know, entity. So the first thing is we're not getting enough people into that space on the trade side of it. And so that's one of the things we're doing. The second thing we're doing is the reality of the matter is I felt like inflation was inevitable. So, you know, we can, again, we can have an opinion about it, but at the end of the day, the reality of the matter is things will get more expensive and that's just what's always happened over time. Nothing has stayed the same in price and literally everything has gone up. If we look at the price of literally anything today versus 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, all of those things have gone up in price. And so I think housing is no different. The issue is we're not utilizing enough of the technologies that we have and all the things we've learned over time to combat the issues that cause us to have this huge affordable housing crisis. There's no reason we should have as many homeless people that want to have a home. There's one thing to be homeless and you desire to be homeless based on maybe your current condition of mental health or, you know, that's or whatever the case may be. But there's a huge population of people that are homeless or underhoused that shouldn't be. And we have all the resources to do it. We just lack from an institutional level, the resourcefulness uh, to get those things done. So um, so I just feel like inflation is just here to stay. It's not going anywhere. So we just got to keep doing what we do. You know, we just have to adjust to the marketplace. Again, real estate's a problem solving business. So one of our issues is materials, labor, all of those things are higher right now. Uh, this is a tight labor market, but that's just the nature of the beast. So we have to be very agile, be very adept and overcome those issues. When you're building these, is there anything in the actual units themselves or how you design them or the materials you use that that allows you to still be competitive? Maybe it's different floor plans or different materials. Is there, is there something that people could leave here and go, man, if I just started doing these things, I could get my costs down and make these more affordable? Um, well, the, so the things we do are, you know, I think there's, you know, I don't think any of this is rocket science, but I think you've got to get really good at sourcing your materials, you know? And so, um, you know, I talked to the owner of one of our primary lumber yards on a regular basis to get an idea of the way the ebbs and flows of pricing when it's more advantageous. Uh, you know, one of the things is if you're really building or if you're doing a decent amount of volume, you should start to stockpile material. You know, I look back and consider myself an absolute idiot when I think that OSB used to be seven dollars eighty bucks and seven dollars and eighty cents a sheet. You know, now we're paying you know twenty seven, <laughs> twenty eight bucks a sheet for it. And so, having the foresight to understand that you know there's going to be uh, hard times, then there's going to be lean times. So, uh, stockpiling and being very creative with uh, how you source your material um and where you're sourcing material from that's another thing we're getting more creative you know we used to just out of convenience buy at local vendors or buy certain places and now we're starting to have more stuff shipped in all you know not to plug amazon but we're starting to utilize amazon more because of you know just quite frankly you can't beat some of their pricing on a lot of fixtures and things we use so repetitiously in our product properties and the other thing we've done that i think a lot 
that may be beneficial to people is we really partner with our trades. And what I mean by that is this. So, you know, my framer or my plumber, my electrician guy, I, you know, what my, if, if I'm talking to you, Chris, you're my electrician. I say, Chris, listen, this is where I need to be on this project. I need to be at $5.50 cents per foot, which I know, you know, you might want to be at $6. However, I can't pay you that. I need to be at five fifty. However, what I can do is all the people that need electrical work that obviously I don't do electrical work, I'll send them to you, which are like retail clients. So we send a lot of retail work to our clients because we have a team of real estate agents. My wife's a real estate broker and we have, and so these people always need some types of services. And so uh, we're able to now send those people a lot of referrals for business. And so, you know, that helps them, you know, stay profitable, stay busy. So that then when we call and say, well, okay, we can't pay what Bob homeowner paid, but we, but see, we, we have a job every week, Bob homeowner, you're going to service today and you may get a referral or two, but it may be another five or six years before he's able to send you more business. And so we partner with our trades to create an environment where they're uh, very profitable and um, we can send them more business that makes our pricing a little bit more advantageous. And uh, what's something else, you know, we get really, so from a design perspective, what I think we can do is, you know, I, so I showed a set of plans to someone and he said, man, that looks expensive to build. And I say, well, it's designed to look expensive, but it's not. It's just hardy plank. But most people just use all horizontal hardy plank. Well, what if you drop just some vertical hardy just around the window? Doesn't You're going to have to cover the window anyway. All you did is just put just a little bit of thought. And so... A lot of ways that you can have high impact with low cost is just adding a little bit of what I call design thought. So you do one or two little design elements so that your house stands out. And now that gives it a higher perceived value. If it's a rental, the people have a little bit more pride in it. You know, the way I articulate it is like this. Our rentals don't look like rentals. So my property that's a rental property isn't going to look like a rental. And what I mean by that is when you look at it, it looks like a really nice house. You say, man, I'd want to live there. Most people that build rental or affordable housing, you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's a new affordable housing development, which to me that that cheapens it to a certain degree. Now, it's great, you know, and, and I'm not I'm all about progress, but I sometimes think we can do a little bit better. And as and one of my personal mantras was always to figure out how can I service these people better? And so I'll share this last little nugget on this note with you. With all our renovated houses. Uh, I have this concept, Chris, that I call the kinfolk factor. <laughs> and the kinfolk factor is this. When when your cousin comes to your house or your aunt or, or someone like that, we all would love to have that one something in our house. They say, oh, man, we got to go to Chris's house. He got this so-and-so. He got a man cave or <laughs> their cooks. They say, oh, man, they have a pot filler in their house. Or, you know, so we always like to have a feature in there, even in our affordable house. It could be a affordable house in the worst part of the community. Like there's a part of Houston called Second Ward and it's one house and all of our old houses get a name. So this house was Miss Carla, Miss Carla. Um, so we took out the 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 wall in between the kitchen and the uh, dining room. The, the wall was made of lapboard siding. And in that place, we put an island. Well, that island was made from the lapboard siding that we took the, out of that wall. And the beauty of this is when you walked into that kitchen and you saw it, it instantly grabbed you like it almost grabbed you by the throat because it was it had it wasn't perfect. Right. If it was granted, it's smooth. No, you got you can see the the tongue and groove join it uh, with this, the, the seams of the uh, boards. But it, it was, you know, we sanded down and we stained it. It looked amazing. 
And every person that walked into their house commented on it. And so that's one of those kinfolk factor houses. We had another house in a, a part of Houston called Cashmere Gardens. And this is a house that leased out at the time for 1200 bucks, you know. So usually you're going to go into a house like that and it's going to have, you know, laminate flooring, you know, basic particle board cabinets. Our, we put shakers in there, soft clothes shakers. We put a herringbone tile. Now, the subway tile was the same subway tile. And most people just laid it in their subway. Well, we paid our guy extra, what, 100 bucks for him to do a herringbone pattern and put a pot filler in there. It cost us extra 150 bucks or 200 bucks on plumbing. So maybe with an extra 500 bucks on this one house where we did a $40,000 renovation. So we spent an extra five to 700 bucks. But now when you walked into that kitchen, you and anybody, any of your neighbors knew you had the baddest kitchen in that community. Like nobody had a kitchen that rivaled that. So we make little nominal, small investments in time and a little bit of thought and thinking about who our avatar is and who these people are that are going to occupy this house and providing them with something that they can take pride in. And when you do that, I think a lot of times we take the we think the buying public, we don't realize they're smarter than we think they are. Like they watched all the same shows we did. You know, they have all the same sensibilities we do. So when you can speak to that and appeal to that, people will pay more if your desire is to pay more. They'll have more value for the property. They'll take better care of it all because they can tell you thought about it. And it wasn't just about you doing the cheapest thing um, to, you know, call it done. You said something the other day on Twitter that, you know, I just really admired. And it was something to the degree of, you know, maybe you could charge fifteen hundred a month, but you don't. Um, how do you think about what to charge? What's enough for you? And what's too much? Sure. So, you know, to understand me as a person, uh, Chris, I'm not money motivated. Um, and it changed my life when I figured that out, that none of my goals are built around a dollar amount or, you know, ex I don't you never see me talk about, a, hey, yeah, this how many units we own like because those things aren't those aren't the metrics or the KPIs that dictate, you know, whether my life is a success or not. I'm more interested in. You know, by personality type, you have, you know, we've uh, there was this way I learned to kind of understand personality types. And we all kind of fall in the four categories. You have blues, yellows, reds and greens. You know, greens are very analytical. Yellows are the people who volunteer, give you the shirt off their back. The reds are the money motivated people. And then you have the blues. We're like we're just fun, loving people, pleasers, love having fun, life of the party kind of people. And so what I recognize is I'm more I'm more I'm more driven by impact than people and how I can affect the lives of others. And so when it comes down to how do we determine what we charge, if it's a property that we're selling, um, now from a professional perspective, the way I entered the business of real estate was uh, via the lending space. So initially I was working for a subprime lender, became a mortgage broker, and I learned the real estate space initially on the financing side. And I'll never forget those calls that I used to get from people who were facing foreclosure on their property. And and delving into how some of these people got there. So the first thing is I always, when we're selling the house, I'm always going to make sure that buyer has equity day one. They're not going to, I'm not interested in pushing comps and getting, being the highest selling property in the area. That's not my goal. Um, because the reality of the matter for you're selling the house and you're going to make 50 grand selling it. And then you could, you could bump it up and make an additional 10. Yeah, that 10 is great, but it's not going to change your life that much. But it could be substantial for that person. That 10 grand could be the difference in them being able to refinance if they got into trouble. So we're always going to leave some equity there because life happens to us all. 
And some of us are better, more or less prepared. And so I want to make sure that I'm not a part of putting you in a position where you're in a compromised situation. And even when it comes to leasing a property, you know, we have a, a certain number we want to hit as our ROI. If we can eclipse that number, great. But if we can hit our number, we're fine with hitting our number. So for us, it's never about squeezing all the juice that's left in the grape. We want to leave some there for the next person. That's awesome, man. And do the folks, when they, do they understand that when they're getting it? Oh, not, that, not that you're out, you know, bragging about it or, or, you know, but do they understand that this is who they're dealing with and this is the type of person they're dealing with when they're buying from you? Well, this is what you can't fake, Chris. When you meet a person, if, you know, if we're in the same space and, and me and you're talking, you're looking in the eyes, like the eyes are the gateway to the soul. It's hard for you to just, you know, it's hard to... In the hood, we say it like this, real recognize real. And my motives and my intents, they just come across. You know what I'm saying? And people can feel it. You know, it's I can tell you something, you can hear it, but it's another thing when you can feel it. And that speaks to more than just what's being said or how it's being said. That speaks to a spiritual level and how energies combine and, and, and resonate with one another. And so, again, this is part of the... Uh, you know, this is part of the more feely, touchy feely, uh, intangible part to business and what we do. But it's a very real part for us. And the second portion goes back to something we said earlier. The average consumer is a lot sharper than we give them credit for. So, you know, when they're renting a house, they know what rents are going for because they've tried to rent in that area. If they're buying, you know, they have an agent who's, who's hey, this is a value. And they've looked around. They didn't just look at my house. So they're not buying in a silo. They've looked at mine. And they've looked at others. So they know or they got an idea that, man, this in, in fact, it goes to the opposite. They're like, well, why is yours le- uh, less? <laughs> you know, sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah, they do recognize it. All right. A couple more just on, you know, understanding this. And 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 what you're doing is is saving these communities, but in a lot of areas, and and I talked to uh Aisha about this on the podcast, you know, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. What are you, what are your feelings on gentrification? And a lot of these neighborhoods that you're in are close to downtowns. They're getting bought up by big developers that want to do big projects. What what goes on in a community when gentrification happens? And 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 just you know, what are your thoughts on that? So you know, um, gentrification. To me, I'm not a person that believes gentrification is bad. For, for one, um, you know, for instance, there's a property I have, Chris, where in the last six months, there have been, I'm saying it's on one street and literally one street over, there's a store. Three ge- gentlemen from that area have lost their lives in and around that store. Like one of them has literally lost their life across the street, cat corner from one of our properties. So if you're anti-gentrification, you're anti-making these areas better so that there can be less stuff like that happens. To me, our issue isn't gentrification as much as it is the lack of affordable housing. That's the big elephant in the room that no one wants to recognize. And it goes back to having an opinion. People see a house getting built and they're saying, oh, well, this raises my property values. That is true. But to me, it's hard uh, to be mad at my property values going up when I understand that this is a wealth component. Like who gets mad because they're getting wealthier? Well, that's because there's an educational gap. So the issue is we are trying to solve something with a, a, a single shot approach. 
and or with a laser approach. Okay, I'm gonna just delve onto this one area, and we're gonna solve all these ills that uh, are plaguing this area. And that's not the case. There are multiple levels to this. It's multiple dimensions that we have to fight this on. So that's why with what we're doing, yes, there's a real estate component, but we use real estate as a tool for economic development. That's my mission. So now, if I can start to empower people in the community, which raises the per capita income. Now you're not being displaced and you can participate in the gentrification, which gentrification means making better. Like in a lot of these neighborhoods and communities, we don't have adequate policing, but you can't have adequate policing if you're in an area where um, there's a very small tax base because people don't, you know, there's a whole bunch of vacant tax delinquent lots, tax delinquent properties. Well, how are you going to pay for policing? How are you going to pay for incentives? Uh, you know, tax incremental reinvestment zones and all these other things, tax abatement, stuff like that. In order to do some of these things, you need a certain amount of people paying into the system to help that. And I'm not saying the government are the most uh, efficient. uh, They're they're the most efficient, efficient people at deploying capital, but that's the system and infrastructure we have. So, you know, we have to attack this on multiple levels and gentrification, in my opinion, is only one piece of the puzzle. We have to deal with displacement. We have to deal with uh, bringing about more affordable housing. We have to bring about uh, plans for economic development that allow for people in these areas to have higher paying jobs and just raising them. You know, you can raise the minimum wage. That's fine. But what do you do for the skill gap? See, in America, we went away from everybody's not going to go to college, but we started to, you know, that began what we espoused. So what about this whole group of people that aren't going to go to college, but still need to have skills to contribute to society so that they can, you know, enrich in their lives. And so, we got to come up with ways that allow people to stair step their uh, way through life. And so there's multiple different ways we can approach this. There's no one, you know, it's just not as simple as us tackling one thing and we solve the issue. It just doesn't work like that. I love it, man. One common thing with you is you don't, uh, you take what's given to you and, and you deal with that. There's none of these hypotheticals. You've, you've kind of, that's been a, that's been a recurring theme. I, I I think very similarly. We can dream all we want, but we have to deal with what we have um, and, and go from there. Yeah, and you're a realist, point, man. You are a realist. And, I, and on the point of being real on these trades, I mean, my plumber in, in DFW is probably making 180 grand a year right now. Um, you know, people people that aren't motivated by this, if it was just the, the financial benefit, trades are paying right now. Um, and they're paying a lot. I posted this on Twitter, uh, the other day and it blew me, blew me away. We were having a conversation with our carpet guy on a humbug and we were just getting some carpet and he's been doing carpets for my wife for probably six, seven years. And and so in a, in a, just a fluke conversation, he he mentioned, oh yeah, you know, I I couldn't get over here by this time because I had to go to this closing on this property. No, and, and, and long story short, getting to dialogue to the crux of it he had just closed on his 14th property paid cash for it 14 properties free and clear now when you see him he got on t-shirts and levi's you know look glue on his jeans this that and the third right little ragley f-150 when you see him after work he's in the big eighty thousand dollar 20 f-25 uh, <laughs> <F-250. laughs> then he starts telling me about his horse ranch you know and so on and so forth and i'm like wow second story i have for you like that is my um my landscaper ishmael I used to literally think his Ford Aerostar van was going to break down in front of our house and, and leak all like that's just how bad of condition it was. And um, so my father-in-law is a, uh, a car dealer. So one day we were at the car dealer at the uh, car auction and I looked to my left. Who's right there? Ishmael. So we get to talking. Ishmael's a, the landscaper. 
Ishmael also spends three months of the year on his beachfront uh, house in Veracruz that's paid off totally free and clear. He imports cars to, you know, back to his home country mm-hmm. and probably makes an additional hundred to $150,000 on a part-time basis. <laughs> and so, and I'm just sitting here like, man, I need to borrow something. <laughs> here I am feeling sorry for you when you cutting the grass, not knowing you, you know, you the millionaire next door times three or four. So, you know, and I can tell you so many other stories of trades that I know that, again, there's an image problem there. Because to kids, they are motivated by what they see, and but they're only seeing them in their work environment. You know, my other electrician, I met him one day after hours, and he pulls up in the port in, in his Porsche Panamera. And I'm like, <laughs> what the? <laughs> you know, so there's definitely an image uh, issue there. And um, yeah, we, we definitely have to get more. I think if more people understood that it's a very viable business, uh, it's a very viable career and business. Um, again, that would help us on the affordable housing issue and, and bringing prices down a certain degree if we could get more people into some of these spaces. Yep. I think we've talked about on Twitter is make money in the service business, buy real estate with it, use that depreciation so you don't pay tax and, and keep the uh, keep the party going. Most certainly. Most certainly. All right. This has been awesome. I want to ask a few personal questions and then we'll uh, we'll let you get back to it. This has been, you've been very generous with your time. Do you have a childhood experience that you kind of remembered vividly that maybe changed the trajectory of your life? Hmm. Um, you know, I can think of multiple. Growing up, you know, in a neighborhood, in a community like what I grew up in, um, unfortunately, there were friends that I lost to gun violence. And, you know, I'll never forget, you know, uh, a good buddy of mine, Donald Brightman, we were in 10th grade. We had just played basketball the night before we used to hoop at our church. So there's there's this church in our community. And one of the things they would do from an outreach perspective is have kids come hoop on Thursdays. So we had just hooped that, uh, that night on Thursday. I go to school Friday and he got killed because after he left the uh, hooping thing, he went to hang, hanging out with some friends and, you know, having to be a couple of the wrong types of people in that in that group. And, you know, he got shot by a straight bullet with somebody playing with the gun. And one of the things that taught me early on was that, you know, environment is everything. The people you're around is very, very crucial and critical. The way we say it in hood binoculars, you always got to peep game. You always got to be aware, cognizant of where you are and what's around you. And so I grew up with that. But when at that moment and Donald wasn't a guy who was, you know, doing any kind of street or any kind of illegal things, but he 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 was just in an environment where he shouldn't have been and he didn't recognize it soon enough. And the price he paid was losing his life. And so one of the things that taught me is one, be mindful of your environment. And, and if it's not the right environment, you need to get out of there quickly. And so um, I equate that to business in a different setting to add a little light to the conversation. And the business application for that is fail fast. So when I'm in a business environment, that's not suiting for me. It's not profitable. It's not, it's draining my energy. I'm not excited about it. I'm going to fail fast, close that down. Okay, that didn't work. Boom, let's move to the next thing. Yep, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry about that. What's uh, one thing you believe in that a lot of people around you don't believe? Hmm. So I try and curate, (laughs) if you will, uh, the environments I'm in. But what's one thing I believe in that most people don't believe? Man, that's a good one. 
Hmm. I hadn't been asked that one before. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm around uh, all like-minded people. Um, tell you what, let's go to the next one. Let me ponder that while uh, we move to the next question. That's that, a good one. That's fair. I'll, you got you got two more. I'll make them easy. These okay. ones will be easy. What's the best? What's the best advice that you've uh, been given? Whether it's in your career, life. If you were talking to your son right now, what what kind of advice are you giving him? So the best advice I was given, I've been married 21 years, thank God. And um, I remember when, um, and so where we worship, they had announced that, hey, so-and-so is getting married. And so another uh, one of the uh, gentlemen who's senior to me by maybe 15, 20 years, hey, you know, time, man, let me, you know, congratulations, this, that, and the third. And he said this one thing, he said, whatever you desire or seek to happen in your relationships, it always start with you. Never forget that. So don't look to the other party to be the initiator of something that you desire. If you desire to see it in a relationship, you lead with that and then allow that to manifest as a result of the actions that you're taking. And I never forgot that. I love it. All right. Is there a book or something you've read or something that that everybody should be reading that, that had an impact on you? Man, I've, I, there's been so many great books, um, you know. Unfortunately, one of the most impactful books, I can't even tell you the name of it because uh, when I used to drive, I used to drive truck cross country. That was a goal. My dad was a trucker. That was his business. So that was one of my first goals to be a trucker. I'll give you a, a nugget from that book, though, that changed my life. And it's probably common knowledge to many. And in that book, it talked about the power of human potential. And it, it explained human potential as that which you're capable of doing that you haven't done yet. And then it went on to juxtapose that statement with the average person versus Albert Einstein. And it said that Albert Einstein used somewhere, you know, it's reported seven to nine percent of his brain power. And the average person uses about four to five percent of their brain power or brain's capability. And that changed my life because instantly I knew that I couldn't hurt this six to eight inches of real estate here. And I became a voracious reader. Like I just started reading everything like and so like if I were to show you, you know, if my wife would have a. If my wife would have a gripe, it's all the books we have. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Our first date was at a bookstore. So that's how much of a nerd I am. <laughs> I love it, man. I, was well, you must, you must add some I, couldn't, I couldn't afford a better date. <laughs> you must add some good game. Picking up a girl at a at a bookstore. Uh, I've not heard that one. but <laughs> And now she was loaded. You know, she was an engineer. And, I mean, making all kinds of money. And so, you know, I was like, well. I probably can't impress her by taking her somewhere she hadn't been, but I bet she ain't been, you know, to the bookstore on the date. So, you know, hey. Oh, I love um, it. You know, what's something a lot of people uh, around me don't believe in? Um, what I'll say, man, is I have an incredible belief in the power of our potential and what we're capable of doing. And what I found uh, in many cases and this is where I, where I love like congregating with like-minded people like yourself on Twitter and other places where I can find these certain conversations. What I love about Twitter is I can engage the mind, you know, with the, some of the greatest minds that I can find. And there's not a lot of places you can do that. And 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 so there's just this belief in human potential and the good of man that I have, and I'm starting to see this starting to wane amongst a lot of people. And I just choose to see the greatness in all of us and, and, and what's capable. Yep. It's a good world out there if you choose to believe it. Um, oh, most certainly. 
the media and headlines, you know, they tend to distract us. But if you if you pay attention, there's a lot of great things going on. And I'll end it with just Whatever saying that's how we met. That's why we're sitting here chatting, man. A <laughs> couple good people hey, go met figure. on Twitter. Go figure, right? Go yeah. figure. Weirder things have happened, man. But yeah, you know, I kind of interjected there. But, you know, as it relates to focus, whatever you focus on expands. You know, there are bad things happening in the world. If you focus on those things, their propensity and how huge they are in your life are going to expand. If you focus on the tremendous things happening in the world, that too will expand. So, you know, wherever your focus goes, things grow. Yep. All right, man. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. This has been great, man. I feel like I already, which I did already know you, but now I feel like I know you I know. <laughs> it's fun. You get to meet your internet friends in person. And if right, I'm going to be down exactly. in Houston, uh, exactly. we, we we just started buying in Houston. So next time I'm down there, I'm going to come find you. Oh, uh, no, we're, hey, listen, it's my city, man. You come down to the Houston, my people going to let me know Chris Pryerson came to the age and, and, and he ain't holler at his boy. So I'm going <laughs> to pull up on you if you don't hit me. <laughs> I'm going to call you. I want to come see what you're doing, man. I really do. I I admire the hell out of you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate those words. And it's, uh, again, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. You guys are doing some absolutely amazing things as well. Uh, One day I aspire to do some of those big, huge deals like that. (laughs) We'll do them. We'll do them together maybe one day. Most certainly. Most certainly. Weirder things have happened. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.